Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Catherine Von Schaik, editor and translator of the book, How to Be Healthy, An Ancient Guide to Wellness. Catherine, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much, Mark. I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. That would be great. I currently am a member of the Faculty of Radiology at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, and I'm also an adjoint assistant professor in the Department of Classical and Mediterranean Studies at Vanderbilt University. And I also have a position as an assistant research professor in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at Vanderbilt as well. Prior to being at Vanderbilt, I did all of my education and training at Harvard University. I studied classics and molecular and cellular biology as an undergraduate at Harvard College. I completed a master's degree in classical art and archaeology at King's College at the University of London. And then after that, I received my medical degree with honors at Harvard Medical School and also my PhD in ancient history at the Harvard Department of the Classics. And then I completed my internship and residency training at Harvard in in Boston as well. And then moved from there here to Vanderbilt for a faculty position. So that's just a fancy way of saying that you have an entire wall, just wallpapered with with degrees and honors, correct? <laughs> I was in graduate school for a very long time, and it was amazing. And I'm I'm very grateful that I had the chance to to pursue this very atypical course of study, which I think has has helped me to have a unique perspective on the ancient world and also on modern medicine. Well, my, my next question, really, given given all the all the various hats you wear, is is how do you find the time to even to, to write a book like to translate a book like this, <laughs> given all all the uh, all, all the commitments you must have? It took a while, and I I have to thank Rob Tempio, the editor of this series at Princeton University Press, and and Chloe Coy as well for their patience. I pitched this to them in 2019. And as you probably know, between 2019 and 2023, there was a global pandemic. And I was a resident at the time. And so I was a little bit busier than I anticipated. <laughs> and Rob was very patient with me. And so to to answer your question, it, it took a while, but I, I found <laughs> the time. And we were finally able to finish the book and, and produce it, which is very exciting for me. It's a the uh, book that you've uh, been working on, it, it's a very interesting book because what you're doing is you're looking at the wisdom to be offered by a uh, ancient healer, a person who is uh, very famous, probably second only to uh, Hippocrates in terms of uh, his status as a, a medical practitioner of the ancient world. And yet you, it's it's an interesting to consider the, the idea of why we want or what he has to offer in a modern age, because we're, we're, we we think about, we're talking about the ancient world. They don't have the germ theory disease. They don't even have an accurate understanding of how the human body works. And, and yet you, you make a, a very interesting case for why it is that learning about Galen and, and his ideas and his advice still has enormous value for us today. Why, uh, who is Galen and, and why seek wisdom from him? Those are two very broad questions. Who is Galen? He was so many different personae, and he himself was very proud of that. 
he was the, I would say, consummate physician in that he was educated in philosophy, in literature, in what might be analogous to what we would call basic science today. He was a traveler. He was an observer. He was a very argumentative interlocutor <laughs> with his competitors. He was an advisor to politicians. He was extraordinarily creative and sensitive. I tend to take or to share, I should say, Susan Matern's perspective in some of her work on Galen in that when we encounter him, we see someone who is maybe a little bit pompous and full of himself. And I think he was in many respects. At the same time, that was also part of the milieu in which he lived, that kind of agonistic, competitive, in-your-face spirit with with competitors publicly as well. So I, I think he he was a bit of a difficult person in some ways, but also a product of his environment. So Galen was was many people. And I think that's part of why he was an outstanding physician and also a communicator of that knowledge and an integrator and a communicator of that knowledge. Why does Galen still matter today? I think there are, I, I outlined some of those reasons in the book. Mm -hmm. I'll highlight three right now. One is that his texts on what we would call psychology or psychiatry or even self-improvement, I think are still very useful for modern audiences. One of his most famous texts, which was recently discovered, involves how to cope with loss. And he describes what we might today call a, a kind of reflection on gratitude. Think about what you do have. Don't just focus on what you've lost. And his meditation on this is very profound as he wrote it in a context of having lost an incredibly valuable and hard-won collection of medicinal plants, of bespoke surgical instruments, of his own decades of writings in a fire. And these were, were things that really many of them couldn't be replaced. And he wrote in a letter to one of his friends how he personally coped with this loss. So his advice comes from a real place of authenticity. And I think such advice is so useful as we look around the world today and see things about which we could be very anxious or very sad. And his his advice is, is very moving and very powerful. Another example involves his reflections on how to improve yourself and how to seek criticism about yourself from others. And that's something that is very difficult to do. And he describes a, a process by which one approaches a, a person whom one knows to be of excellent moral character and to to really insist that that person tell you what you're doing wrong. And I think his approach to that is is very brave and very important. And he concludes in the, the portion of the text that, that I've included, I, I uh, conclude that section with Galen's comments on that whole process. And he says, you know, you're, you might not become perfect, but that shouldn't mean that you should stop trying. And it doesn't matter how old you are, you should always keep trying to become a better person. So that's one reason why I think his texts are, are useful. Another reason why I think his texts are useful is because he was a keen observer of people. And his reflections on the people he met 
are really a good reminder that observation and interaction with people is really at the core of the patient-physician relationship. It always has been, and I hope it, it always will be. I think in an era in which we're increasingly considering the use of AI in medicine and seeing where there's real benefit for that, it's still important to remember that the core of that relationship, the core of all is the same as the core of 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 all human relationships, which is that one-on-one -on -one interaction between the patient and the physician and the value of that. A final reason I think his texts are, are useful and, and applicable for a modern context involves a measure of being critical of our own medical systems. And I, I use an example when I teach Galen to medical students or to undergraduates or even to residents when I give history of medicine lectures, involves thinking about a patient Galen may have seen. And that was a patient who was feverish, tossing and turning, maybe delirious, hot to the touch, pulse would have been racing, and that would have been very distressing for family members. This was a person who was obviously very sick. Galen would have approached that person and would have performed venous section, cut the veins to bleed that individual. And immediately, all the observers would have seen that individual calm down. The patient would have felt less hot to the touch. The pulse would not have felt like it was quite as strong or racing quite as much. And so from the perspective of those observers, that person was doing a lot better because they weren't exhibiting those distressing symptoms. And so I, I mention this because obviously we don't bleed people anymore unless they have a, a, a condition, for example, called hemochromatosis when they have too much iron in their blood and we, we bleed them therapeutically. But we, we don't bleed people for infection the way Galen did. But I, I present that to say, now think about the way medicine is practiced today. What are we doing now that 200, 1,000 years in the future, we will look back and say, wow, I can't believe they were so misguided that they would proceed with that kind of treatment. I think that humility is vitally important in modern medicine and part of how we continue to improve. We should think about what, not only what are we doing incorrectly, but how are our systems constructed in such a way that we might be unable to see where we're getting things wrong. And I think study of Galen is also useful in that regard to continue to foster a spirit of humility in modern medicine. You, uh, a lot of what you've just described is, I think, nicely reflected in your book. I, I was especially struck by how uh, you it, there, there's so much about Galen that is, we he is definitely a medical practitioner, but there are elements in his writing as you've translated it. Uh, it, it, that that come across as much as philosophy, and, and it strikes me that it, in an area in an era where we tend to have a lot a, a big emphasis upon specialisms and specialization of, of of medicine, about how Galen has this this very broad encompassing view that isn't just about medicine, but it's about its place in our lives. And I thought that was especially uh, well developed in the first category of uh, of his writings that you present, which is on the mind body connection. That it's not just about necessarily physical health; it's not just about mental health, but it's about that uh, you know that obvious overlap between the two, and 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 how you know that is so important to human health. I'm so glad that you mentioned that. This is something about which I'm very passionate as someone who studied the humanities and medicine. I'll mention that. Galen lived in a world in which silos across what we would call disciplines were not a thing. Philosophy and medicine and science as we know them today were all intimately related. 
Aristotle wrote on, for example, the audience's response to tragedy in the form of catharsis, which of course is also a medical term. And he also wrote detailed treatises on biology. And Galen, of course, was familiar, intimately familiar with all of these, these works of Aristotle and Plato as well. And Galen integrates all of these thinkers into his own very sophisticated system of physiology and health and disease. Now, one might say he didn't do it correctly, but I do think there were a lot of aspects of that system that were quite sophisticated. For example, he was able to create a system that allowed for a classification of types of disease while also still facilitating consideration of the patient as a unique individual. So in other words, his system had generalizing tendencies and capabilities while at the same time maintaining the identity and physiology of the individual. That's very sophisticated. And that's, I think, in some ways what we aspire to today when we think about randomized controlled trials that try to hide some individual variability so that we can find some kind of truth in medicine that we can generalize to many people. At the same time, especially now, there's a growing field of precision medicine, this idea of therapies that are uniquely targeted to individuals. So today we still struggle with this same polarity in medicine, general and and particular. And that was very well articulated by ancient philosophers, Greco-Roman philosophers. Galen was aware of all these debates and folded them into his own system. So I think that thinking of Galen as a product of this integrated system of education is also very useful. And I'll say on a personal note that I am concerned to see universities today decreasing their funding for an investment in the humanities. I think the Western humanistic tradition is the tradition that produced people like Vesalius and Copernicus and Galileo and Newton. These are the people that science considers its heroes today. And they were well-versed in these traditions and these ways of thinking. And in order for us to continue to develop as dynamic, self-critical, innovative, and creative thinkers, I personally believe that that is facilitated by involvement in this greater humanistic tradition. And so I also feel that Galen is a great role model for that. And that's part of what I'm trying to do with my own work in terms of bringing Galen into dialogue with my perspective as a modern practicing physician. And that's the, the, something about Galen that I thought was very, uh, in, in some, it gets to something that we, we, that we see some that we sometimes see discussion of. I'm not a medical practitioner, but I, I see so much of it in the media. The 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 notion of of the mind body linkage, and how that's not a new thing. In some ways, it's it, we're we're it, there's so much uh, you know motion away from it, and yet at the same time, in some ways, we're circling back to it. It's, it's like we're we're finding the 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 truth that that Galen appreciated that it's that you know the the mind and the body are are not separate entities that they that they function as that they that they function in in tandem and that you know what happens to, with one impacts other we're, we're we talk about it in a lot of particulars in terms of like dopamine levels or we talk about you know seasonal affective disorders but really it's it it, it 
it's you know could be so much bigger than that and something that that, that galen was much more uh focused on that than, than we sometimes might see in today's medicine absolutely and there's a, a phrase i think i have in the book that we would consider his advice very modern were it not so old and i i think absolutely that's true there's a a, an excerpt from a, a text he in which he includes several case histories called the prognosis that I've included in the volume in which he describes diagnosing a, a case of lovesickness. And the, the way in which it happens is he there's a young woman who is lethargic and won't eat and won't interact with people. And I won't go into more details. You can read it in the book, but essentially by feeling her pulse in certain contexts in which her beloved is mentioned, he's he's able to diagnose this case of lovesickness. <laughs> and it's a very sweet story. And it's maybe not something that we would necessarily diagnose today, certainly not in that way. But I think it speaks to his firm belief in the connection, the deep connection between the physical body and one's mental and emotional state. And that's, that's so important to recognize. And, and we're, I think, coming back to that today in medicine in a very useful and productive way. I must confess, it was it was not until I read that that I even made that connection. I always thought love sickness is metaphorical, and how it, yet, you know, there, there was a time where they thought that, that it was indeed, you know, a, a physical condition. Yes, yes. And there are many studies in, in a modern context that look at dopamine levels and oxytocin levels. And it's it's really very, now we, we have mechanisms by which we can explain these physiological responses. But it's it's very powerful. And I, I not too long ago, I read a, a study that looked at dementia patients and specifically couples in which they'd been married a long time and one of them had dementia to the point where it was very difficult to communicate and the the other partner was was cognitively intact and the the patient with dementia the blood pressure of that patient was noted to decrease in the presence of the spouse and i that was just such a beautiful outcome of that study in my mind the the power of that that the presence of those people together, even when one of them maybe is unable to speak or to articulate, it's hard for us to know what that person is is feeling or seeing or or how their physiology is affected. But the physiology is real, and it's it's a cardiovascular physiology that we can measure <laughs> in in our way, in a in a certain sense analogous to what Galen was measuring. And so we're we're increasingly, I think, coming to recognize and to quantify with our own systems the value and the power of of that interaction between body and mind or emotion that Galen was was very deeply attuned to, and it was it was a part of his system that was very integrated into his overall physiology. I, I have to say that the thing that I found most modern about him was his commentaries on exercise in the body, because I I just never really thought of of. of the exercise craze as being anything other than modern. And yet, as you describe in, in uh, your, your chapter where, you, uh, where you've translated a, a work where he talks about it, that he you know, appreciated the, the value of exercise. I, I used to think it was something that, that they even the ancients felt it was necessary. They had to do so much physically where they, 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 were, they were forced by, by circumstances to be active. And yet clearly they were as concerned with, with, with keeping fit and, and, and exercising as, as we are today. Certainly. And keep in mind, Galen's perspective is maybe there were other physicians who felt differently, but uh, Galen certainly 
saw the value of exercise, although in moderation. And one thing that I think we can disagree with is he was very against running. And as a, as a runner myself, I, I find that a little bit disconcerting. But who knows, he may have seen plenty of people who had terrible arthritis because they were running on hard surfaces without any kind of, of shock absorber. Yeah, so I, mean, I don't bare, know bare what, what he necessarily, yeah, or barefoot, <laughs> although there is a barefoot running movement. But I think his his emphasis on exercising different parts of the body in different ways, thinking about balance, activities that facilitate balance, as well as build strength, activities that involve mobility, and then his also his focus on ensuring that activities are appropriate for age and and one's own physiology. Again, that's that's his sensitivity to each individual patient's needs. And I think that's that's really important to speak to your point about people being m more active in antiquity and would they have thought about exercise. I, I also it, one of the other things I do is I, I work in the field of bioarchaeology, and that involves looking at human remains from past population for evidence of, of disease. And I use my skills as a radiologist to look at CTs of mummies and x-rays of skeletons from the past and one one thing that's very clear from looking at these remains is very much the high level of trauma that people would have sustained just in their daily life. And Galen talks about this as well, about setting broken bones and dealing with infection from wounds. And so people certainly were more physically active in their daily lives, just in basic ways, than we were today. And it's also important to keep in mind Galen was writing for a more elite audience. So these were individuals who might not have been plowing the fields and we're sitting around <laughs> a little bit more and maybe had time to go to the gym and do these exercises. So it's important to keep in mind that context as well. But yeah, I think there's a lot to be gained from his exercise descriptions and they're, they're very useful. You can do them without any equipment. <laughs> so that's that's also part of the fun. Well, he just talked about the small ball, and, and that's what I thought was yes. interesting. Was it, it wasn't he wasn't just talking about exercise. He was talking about why that particular exercise benefits you in ways that your normal activities. And and he references, for example, hunting, which right. you know, which it, it, going to your point, that's exactly the sort of activity that 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 leisure people could do. And he's yes. saying, well, that's good, but that's not enough. You need to do these. And I, I'm just thinking about all the times I hear, you know, you have to do a well-rounded uh, regimen. You can't just you know exercise these muscle groups have to do these as well He's, it's the same thing just in a different context it totally is and he even says explicitly this will keep your mind sharp too because you have to think about what's your opponent going to do and where is the ball going to go and so he he really also is speaking to what i think physicians today would would laud in that this is a, a comprehensive exercise that allows you to to do it at your own speed and to make accommodations for any kind of injuries you might have. He says that too. You can you can work this this part of the body or this part of the body. It involves thinking. And then I might add as well that it involves being with others when one is undertaking this exercise. And, and obviously interaction with other people is so vitally important to health as well. And Gala didn't explicitly mention that in that text, but I think that's part of what makes that activity really fun and, and useful. And it's also maybe it's analogous to pickleball or something when one thinks <laughs> of a kind of adaptable 
activity with a with a small ball that involves teams uh that's that's part of why i liked it because i think it's very relatable to a, a modern context there's also something that i found very futuristic about his approach which was the chapter on individual physiologies and i'm thinking this because uh, i recently covered a, a another book in this podcast which looked at this trend towards you know appreciating how we don't just talk about we can't just talk about conditions that in a sense each person's physiology and biology is unique and the more that we try to uh, understand that the better we can get to curing the individual and and at the time i remember thinking that this was you know so incredibly you know cutting edge and then i'm reading this entire chapter where gail had this approach 200 2000 years ago <laughs> Exactly. And and I feel completely the same way. And I think it's easy for people to dismiss Galen out of hand and say, his system is so clearly wrong. And how could he have not understood the circulatory system? And we weren't able to make that correction for another 1600 years. And so as a, as a consequence, we throw out the whole system. But I, I think there's a couple of things to take away from that. The first is that Galen's system was so well constructed that it did last for that long people found his texts compelling and sufficiently useful that there really was not a whole lot to replace him for a very long time. So that's important to consider. The other important aspect to consider about his texts involves thinking through exactly what you're describing, that he allowed for individuality of patients. And when we think now about precision medicine, that's the phrase where you have someone's all of their scans and their genetics and their epigenetic profile, and we can select the best drug at the best dose for that patient, for that specific manifestation of that problem on the basis of all of these pieces of information. And that's really what Galen was articulating. And he, I think he even in a way prefigures the use of something like AI when he says best of all would be to be like Asclepius and to know every single little thing about a patient's life and exposures and history. But no man can do that. And then he's Galen. So he says, of course, I'm going to try. But he acknowledges <laughs> how impossible that is. And now I think the hope for things like AI is that it is so expansive. It does have super or seems to have superhuman capabilities to take into account every aspect of every human's life and then spit out a recommended diagnosis and therapy on the basis of those pieces of information. And so I do think I agree with you that his approach in that regard does seem futuristic and prefigures the, the capability that we are starting to have, which is another great reason why I think it's important to read these texts and to marvel at, at Galen's prefiguring in a way of, of that aspiration. And then also to think about uh, think about it from a cautionary perspective. So he had this compelling system and he has this idealized focus on individuals that worked within a framework that was totally incorrect. And so I think what, what this leads us toward is both hope and optimism at what we're able to do now in modern medicine, but also a recognition that we might think it's going really well when our foundation is, is actually partially or completely incorrect. So it's, again, it's, it's that focus on optimism, but also caution and being willing to criticize one's ideas and, and the context in which one finds oneself. And I think back to what I said earlier, the humanities are so useful 
in enabling us to do that. That that I wanted to actually touch upon a, 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 an aspect of what you just raised, which was the fact that it, 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 it and this is something we, we've been we've been uh, referencing throughout, which is that there there there's wisdom, and yet there's a degree of qualification that needs to be take place, given the fact that there were aspects of what he was proposing, which were frankly, you know, mistaken. And I'm, I'm thinking totally wrong. Here, dangerously yeah, and, wrong well i'm thinking for example like like when we're talking about the chapter on, on body nourishment i mean we're, we're and yeah. here we see galen the nutritionist and you, you point out that he you know he he's aware of something that, that we all take for granted today which is that it, it you know you know diet is is a huge uh, contributor to health and yet as you point out he's against fresh fruit which, which i'm sure would cause most dietitians to you know you know Raise an eyebrow. Frustration. <laughs> I was actually going to go a bit further than that, but yeah, yeah, yeah just raise an eyebrow. There'd be some sort of bodily uh, uh, demonstration of, of frustration, expression of shock. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, but again, here here we see this example of, of how uh, this appreciation of 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 that health was just a matter of him as professional making a diagnosis, but him also trying to advise on how his patients and how people could live healthier lives. Yes, and this gets back to his remarkable facility with observation. And of course, certain of his observations were incorrect and the way he interpreted some of them were incorrect, but I think the spirit is absolutely accurate. Today, we recognize, or maybe we could say his ideas are perhaps analogous to the field of epigenetics, which involves thinking through the ways in which our environment switches on or off our genes. And there's growing evidence that epigenetic modification of genes actually has a greater impact on certain pathological, the development of certain pathological conditions than the genes themselves do. And this is very much in line with what physicians have observed for a very long time, which is that what you ingest, how you behave, where you live has a profound impact on your health. And we know through a variety of, that this happens through a variety of mechanisms I think our understanding of those mechanisms is growing ever more sophisticated. And in turn, that is leading us to develop, to redevelop some of our ideas around health and disease. But I, you know, I think Galen in some ways was already there in thinking through how does one incorporate an individual patient's needs and physiology into a broader framework that can encompass every patient's individual physiology because there have to be some underlying similarities, right? And he knew that. And so I think that's part of the the remarkable aspect of what Galen did is developing a system that that puts into dialogue general themes about human physiology because we are all more genetically alike than we are different. And I think his system accounted for that while also allowing for variability in individual fundamental makeup and also individual variability in exposures. And that's what I think is really powerful about his system. One of many things. And I I I said, by the way, that that we we find all this insight and and yet you do qualify by saying that we, we, we have to appreciate his wisdom, but we can't treat it as though you're not promoting here the 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 galen fad diet or the, definitely or, not or, absolutely or, 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 or not the galen exercise <laughs> machine. but but yet that we we find within it truths about health that are as relevant today as they were in his time 
Yes. And that's why I was so excited to be able to suggest this topic to Rob Tempio and really grateful that he accepted it because I felt like because of my background and my training and the exceptionally long time I spent in graduate school, as you pointed out at the beginning, I did feel like I could approach this from a position of both rigor and sympathy in the sense of saying, yes, this is obviously very wrong. At the same time, sympathy as both a physician and a historian saying this is a very sophisticated thinker and system and it it merits acknowledging that while also recognizing its flaws. We appreciate the time you've taken out of your schedule to speak with us. But before we go, could you uh, tell us what you're working on now? Several things. <laughs> I can imagine. I, I am working on a book on medical decision making in Greco-Roman antiquity. That was actually my dissertation, and it got sidelined by this book. I'm eager to continue working on that. I'm also working on several projects that have to do with AI assessment of musculoskeletal conditions in my role as a clinical radiologist. And then I'm also working on several projects that involve the use of imaging and epigenetic analysis in individuals from past populations, specifically looking at the way that exposures and epigenetic modifications to genes implicated in osteoporosis impact what we can see in CT scans and x-rays of those remains. And then I also compare those findings from past populations to today as a way of thinking about how has the mechanism of human aging changed over time? Those are just a couple of the things that I'm working on. Well, it sounds like a lot of fantastic projects. I wish you the best of luck with all of them. Thank you so, so much, Mark. I'm so grateful for the time that you shared with me and for the opportunity to be on the podcast. And I'm grateful for the time you took to speak with us, especially given how much you're involved with and how you know so fascinatingly important it is. Thank you. It's uh, it's fantastic to be in an environment like Vanderbilt, where it's very collaborative, and I'm able to work with a lot of different colleagues from a lot of different fields. And that's something I'm really enjoying. Well, Catherine, thank you very much. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you so much, Mark. You as well.